Thank you, Jim. I, I see Father Escara has fled. I don't see him here in the audience now. Uh, now that he's revealed my method for dealing with complicated subjects by cheating, um, and now, now I feel obliged to prove him wrong by staying within my time. Uh, except that, on the other hand, I hear that uh, the lunch at the Marriott is at its best when it's very, very cold. Uh, and beside that, beside that, uh, uh, there is also a kind of little nihilist and Nietzschean strain in me, which makes me think that I should destroy what other men cherish and keep you here longer than you really want to. Now, um, let me really start this by noting that there are easy and there are difficult topics. Uh, easy topics are anything involving problems of modern education, which you can talk about at the drop of a hat. All I have to do is mention something like the student who came into my 19th century European class asking if he had the book for the course, and it was a book on biology. And he said, but it's green. I was told that you have the green book. And I said, I do have a green book, but my green book is on 19th century history. Uh, and uh, we finally resolved that problem, although when he came back with the correct green book and asked me what he had to do with it, and I told him he had to begin at the beginning and end at the end, he said, you're terribly, terribly tough. Um, <laughs> This, this, this subject is a, is a difficult subject. It might not seem to be, but it's a difficult subject. And it's a difficult subject right off the bat because when you do examine in detail the life of uh, Pope St. Pius X, you, you see that you really are dealing with a figure of awe-inspiring sanctity as a model, especially for the clergy. And not only that, but total normality to boot. In other words, you're dealing with a man here who loved his education, who loves his vocation, who never has a problem with his vocation, and, and really is balanced uh, in terms of his, his personality. And this, particularly for a, a near-duel, frivolous person like myself, <laughs> is somewhat difficult to really try to approach. I keep my balance by reaching cocktail hour uh, in, the, in the evening. <laughs> Uh, it's also a difficult subject because of the fact that this, this awe-inspiring figure that you have to deal with is nevertheless a man, uh, and it's, it's really a cheat in understanding sanctity to deny the fact that you have a, a man who is struggling in order to become saintly and has his own life and his own baggage that direct him down different directions in his whole struggle for sanctity. And he's a man who tends to, who just was born into a period and then gained uh, the control that he does over the universal church at a moment when it is engaged in these terrible, terrible culture wars uh, in which there are dangers on all fronts, regardless of what kinds of decisions that you make. And we'll get back to this in a minute. And then finally, it's also a difficult subject because you do have to approach it when you are trying to give a picture of the problems that we face in our own time, and even heroes of ours face in our own time, you do have to approach it uh, in a historical context. And many, many people end up being suspicious of history because what they think of when they think of history is actually historicism. Uh, historicism is the uh, approach towards history that presumes that everything, including what it is that's supernatural, uh, actually emerges from the natural context of things, and that, that's not 
obviously the approach that I'm taking here. But there's, there's always a little suspicion in people's minds, I think, that that might be a problem. So all of this added up together is something that made me really, really have to think a bit about uh, exactly how to present my, my, uh, my talk today. Now, let me begin in an obvious way with just simply giving the, the bare bones of uh, Pope St. Pius X's life. And I'd like to, uh, I'd like to uh, begin that by just making a point about sources in general. We, we obviously have official documents and acts of uh, not just uh, Pope St. Pius X as Pope, but in his other, his other functions earlier. But we're dealing with a man who is a very, very private individual. His, his secretary for 30 years, Giovanni Bressan, notes this, that even he is a man who was intimate with him for 30 years, was only very, very rarely allowed uh, a, an insight into his, his heart. Uh, we have some letters of his which are, are important. And also, in a way that I'll come back to in a second, parish registers of his are uh, a good, good insight into his understanding of his function as priest. We also have the witnesses before the Beatification and the Canonization Commissions. Now, a lot of these witnesses are speaking years after the events that they recount, and there's, there's problems that can come in with memory in this regard. But I ought to note that there are many, many negative comments as well as positive comments that enter into an understanding of the man um, who is struggling towards sanctity and as the church makes us uh, realize and as people who are his own contemporaries realize uh, he is a man who won that struggle for sanctity. There are a number of biographies of Pius X, but I don't find uh, some of you might be able to um, tell me better information in this regard, but I'm, I'm not quite familiar with English ones that um, I think are as good as the Italian ones and the French ones. Now, uh, when we look at his bare bones life, the life of Pius X, what we see as an umbrella for understanding the man's career is that we've got someone who has an extraordinary hands-on practical pastoral experience. And this is different from most of the people who reach, to, reach the Sea of Peter. He has this extraordinary hands-on practical experience and under very trying conditions of all sorts. He's born on June 2nd in 1835 in northern Italy, a place called Riese, in the part of Italy, the Veneto, which up until 1866 was underneath Austrian Habsburg control. It's a place that's still difficult to get to. There's only really one road that leads up there, and if you try to go in a weekend, take lunch and dinner with you, because the traffic will often prevent you from getting back. Uh, it's in the Diocese of Treviso, a poor region beset with agricultural problems. He himself, Pius X, was not poor, not really poor, until the unexpected death of his father in 1852, when he and his family do experience uh, quite, quite great difficulties in, in staying alive. Uh, he's helped in this regard because of the fact that he has scholarship money by the point that uh, the situation becomes dire. He went, while his father was still alive, to pre-seminary in a nearby town, Castelfranco. He then goes off from 1850 to 1858 to the, a seminary in Padova, a one that has a great renown, but is also passing through an interesting and troubled period in a politically charged atmosphere. He stays there on scholarship and is 
uh, admittedly somewhat isolated from the charged political atmosphere in the town at large, but is aware of it through the struggles even among professors at the seminary. Now when he's done, he goes back to his Diocese of Treviso, where he's ordained in 1858. He becomes curate at a place called Tombolo, where he stays between 1858 and 1867. There, is, there are at Tombolo 2,400 inhabitants living, I'll just mention the Italian because it sounds better in this regard to indicate the problems, living in squalida miseria, you know, squalid misery. Uh, the townspeople have a reputation, again in Italian, they sano arrangiarsi, which means they know how to get by. And a lot of the way that they know how to get by is shall we say, dubious. They are also bevitori and bestemiatori. They drink a lot and they blaspheme a lot. Then he moves on to a place called Salzano between 1867 and 1875, which if anything is even more appalling. Uh, in fact, the population is not too happy when they hear he's coming because they know that he is as poor as they are and they had hoped that they would get somebody who was wealthier who could avoid asking for any kind of contributions to keep the parish going. The place we know from parish registers again, and it's at Salzano that the death registers, all of them put uh, in by uh, uh, Giuseppe Sarto, the future Pope Pius X, they're, they're one of the key uh, indices that we have to his real feeling for the people who are under his, his spiritual care. And he tells us in here of a place which is plagued by tuberculosis, by malaria, by typhus, even by smallpox still, despite vaccinations, by periodic cholera uh, outbreaks, by pellagra, by mental illness. And this is the one that strikes me most uh, as a, a difficulty that would be horrible facing on a regular basis, diarrhea. Um, he says that the population lives more uh, in huts rather than homes. And he has got a lot of responsibilities in taking care of this parish. Um, he is, as pastor, responsible not only for the church, but for a school, for a charitable institution that was set up by one man who had, had some wealth, who had been pastor some time before, and a hospital as well. He's called away from uh, Salzano in 1875 by the Bishop of Treviso, a man named Zinelli, who I'll mention uh, once more in the future, a uh, few minutes. Uh, again, uh, Treviso is a place which is politically charged due to circumstances at the time, which we'll have to cover. And he uh, is called there to take a role in the Curia. Now, the role in the Curia that he ends up taking uh, actually means doing everything. He has to do everything. It's really at Treviso more than any place else that he first gains a reputation, which when we uh, examine this in more detail, you see he really earned at Salzano as well, that uh, he really gains the reputation as a workhorse. He ends up working as canon, as chancellor, as head of the seminary. Bishop Zinelli was sick, and he had to take on the responsibilities, really, that the bishop otherwise would have had. Uh, after a time here, from 1875 down to 1884, he is made a bishop. He is made a bishop and ventures outside of the Veneto to the broken down town of Mantova. Uh, he becomes bishop of a Mantova, which is really down uh, on its luck. It once had been a great Renaissance city. It's got 30,000 people as a population. 
It's on a kind of swampy lake and is plagued by malaria. And it too has got political problems and a great deal of agricultural and economic unrest. From here, his reputation has reached such a point that he is named to a better position uh, back in the Veneto as Patriarch of Venice, uh, is also made Cardinal at the start of his, uh, his reign in Venice as Patriarch, which lasts from 1893 to 1903. But here, too, we're dealing with his control over a politically charged place and a city which is kind of confused because even though this has been going on for a, a good century already, uh, Venice has taken a long time to try to digest its degeneration from a place that was independent and uh, had a, a life of its own to being a tourist attraction uh, more than anything else. And then from Venice, as we all know, he goes on to become Pope of a politically charged Europe on the brink of disaster between 1903 to 1914. Now, one way, one, one way, and there are many ways that we could talk about this, but one way of approaching this awesome figure of a man um, and this is once again being approached by a frivolous ne'er-do-well talking about him, who has always wondered how in the world he got into the profession that he is. And sometimes when he stands in front of his students, me, I'm talking about wondering whether he's dead and in hell. Um, uh, for someone like me, looking at this awesome figure who is so normal and so capable with love of approaching uh, all of the tasks put in front of him, one way of dealing with it um, is by, and by dealing with it in an atmosphere which, as I've tried to indicate, is difficult and charged, is with reference to what we talked about yesterday in my discussion of the Catholic Church as an inheritor, um, as an heir of the Roman Empire. But I want to add one point to what I spoke of yesterday in this regard with respect to the fact that in the 19th century, the church's awareness of its inheritance and of its, its character as church as such has been very, very much charged up, is very, very much more fleshed out by this dramatic revival of Catholic um, intellectual and spiritual life and practice in the 19th century as a whole. So let me just dwell on this for a moment because it's very important for understanding uh, the background in which Pius X grows up as well. What is the character of this Catholic revival of the 19th century? Well, it's, a, it's an encouraging one building upon what Father Scarra was talking about, uh, about learning about past disasters in the history of the church. Because the 18th century, the late 18th century in particular, is a, is a disaster for Catholicism, and that is true even before the French Revolution. The French Revolution is, in many respects, a dotting of the I's and a crossing of the T's of a disaster that was, uh, in, in many respects, self-inflicted beforehand. Because the church as a whole, in the late 18th century, even reaching the top, even reaching the Holy See, had uh, swallowed a lot of the critique of the naturalism of the Enlightenment. The Enlightenment insisting that what you ought to do um, at best is to just uh, chuck entirely all of this supernatural religious concern, but then, um, then uh, if, if need be, at least just exile it from most of your basic daily activity. And when you look at the insipid life of much of the Catholic Church 
in the late 18th century with its, its, its um, consideration really to a large degree for basic, basic survival in a natural environment in such ways that uh, much, of the, much of the prayer life, much of the devotional life of the church had been um, suppressed, uh, ranging, from, ranging from the Jansenist dislike of devotions to the Sacred Heart, to prohibitions of processions, uh, to the exile of St. Thomas Aquinas from seminary teaching, which was normal by the time you reach the late 18th century. So, so much so that the church had to be reawakened from a naturalist slumber. And this, thankfully, takes place in the 19th century. From all kinds of little circles of clergy and lay people working together, from a seminary here, a seminary there, from lay groups that begin to set up journals, uh, and uh, this snowballs. And what ends up happening is there's a reawakening to the fact that the church only gains its strength and only can affect this marvelous use and completion of everything natural if it operates from an awareness of it being the body of Christ, of it being Christ-continued in time, a supernatural force. Uh, this, this revival is, uh, to a large degree, unknown to most Catholics, and yet it's of such a significance that some of the members of it, like, for example, the a Bishop of Regensburg in Germany, is given the title in Germany of the man who taught Germany how to pray again. Because all of these, these prayer-centered approaches towards dealing with life were looked upon as a kind of relic of the medieval past. And the Catholic revival movement as a whole stressed that the church needed a reawakening to root itself once more by looking above from the supernatural down to the natural, which would be scooped up in the church's arms and then really exploited to the full with everything that it had to offer. And then in this regard, it rediscovered what I talked about in uh, the high Middle Ages of the church's awareness of dealing with a complex society in which individuals all had their part to play, but within the context of social institutions and social authorities and the, uh, the beneficial uh, force that these exercised over individuals within the body of Christ. And then finally, with regard to the character of this Catholic revival, there is an awareness that there is a war taking place. And that war, as one article that I think I quoted last year at my talk here from La Civiltà Cattolica in Rome said, was a war for whether Christ was going to be king of the universe with a respect for nature and freedom and reason, or whether man was going to be king of the universe with the triumph of the will. Again, what I spoke about yesterday coming onto the scene very clearly with Marsilius of Padua and William of Ockham. And in this revival, there's also a sense of the fact that there's always that dance that's involved in life. Now, Pius X learned of this Catholic revival at Padova, at the seminary in Padova. And this is understandable because the seminary in Padova, which had a great tradition from the past, had suffered badly from being dragged down into flatland uh, in the course of the 18th century and the early 19th century. And with the more Catholic spirit of the Emperor Franz Josef, the, the controls on this were relaxed. And so it came back to life again, just in the years 
that Pius X was studying in Padova in the course of the 1850s. And a number of his professors at Padova were aware of all of the different elements entering into the Catholic revival. Then, when he went to Treviso uh, and worked together with a man he deeply admired, who uh, was uh, under such duress, uh, Bishop Zinelli, that he actually had to be ushered into his own church when he took over as bishop, uh, surrounded by Austrian soldiers with bayonets uh, ready uh, on the go. But Bishop Zinelli, who played a role in Vatican I, First Vatican Council, knew Cardinal P. of Poitiers very well. And Cardinal P. of Poitiers, whose name you've heard mentioned here a number of times, uh, is, is one of the greatest figures and one of the most nuanced of the greatest figures also of the 19th century revival. Uh, it's, almost the case, it's almost the case that one could say that if you read Cardinal P. alone, uh, you would have before you uh, an exposition not only of all of the problems of modernity, but of the, the, the most um, clear and the most nuanced way of trying to confront them. And through Zinelli, uh, the future Pius X learned of Cardinal P. Now, let's go back then to the framework I set up yesterday. The Catholic Church is the heir of the Roman Empire. And I left some of the points out that I was going to discuss till today so that I could work with them with Pius X. Now, remember we talked about the literal level on how the church is the heir of uh, the uh, Roman Empire. And one of the most obvious ways, which is mentioned already by Pope St. Clement in the first century, is the church looking to the Roman army as a model for its, its, its character and its role. The Roman army was an army on the march, an achiem, or uh, an augmen, rather, and then it was ready for battle, to go into battle as an achiem. And nevertheless, it was always a disciplined, armed, militant force. And what I'm arguing here is that the whole character of Giuseppe Sarto, Pius X, is as a man with an iron army discipline. Now, he forges this for himself to a large degree. And one of the things that you can think of in this respect is his early pre-seminary years in Castelfranco, where he had to spend a good chunk of the day walking from his home in Riese to Castelfranco and back again. A rather long, long um, stretch for a little boy to have to do, uh, in which, through inclement weather and the like, he seems to have begun this uh, forging of a tremendous self-discipline. And he was already recognized as a man who accepted discipline and could therefore exercise authority over others uh, in Castelfidardo, in fact, even back in Riese before he went, uh, Castelfranco, and even back in Riese before he went off there. And he's ready to exercise authority. He's ready to be able to tell uh, his fellow students what they need to do. And I ought to note, and I mentioned that we're dealing with a man here who has to work through his own baggage uh, uh, and his own personal, personal um, character towards sanctity. He's a man ready to use his fists a lot, too. Um, he uh, is ready to slap around students who don't uh, stay in line in Riese. He's ready to um, actually do the same thing with the bevitori and bestemiatori in Tombolo. He finds somebody who blasphemes him. He is a curate over there. He just gives them a punch in the face. Um, he doesn't care. In Salzano, as pastor, 
he not only got into a huge brawl with a group of people who were blocking the road on the way back to Salzano from outside, but he got involved in it with the rest of the town so that the whole town was in this free-for-all battering these people to bits and pieces with uh, Sarto only escaping punishment by the law because of basically the lying of his parishioners. In fact, Bresson, his secretary, said that he could often lose his temper so much while he was pope that he would pound his fist down on the table and then cause deep harm to his fingers uh, as a result of it, not breaking them, but, uh, but coming close, uh, seemingly. He, he's, he's a man like the figures that I mentioned coming from the senatorial aristocracy who knows, to use that favorite phrase I've probably mentioned uh, to you before in the past uh, that I heard from a woman when I was first teaching, he's a bishop who knows how to bish. You know, he knows how to bish. He knows how to, he knows how to, how to, how to smack down and deal with, with problems. Now, um, he's as such horrified by the lack of discipline for the Ogmen, for the Achiem, for the church as heir of the Roman Empire, but with a new mission and a higher mission. And he's horrified because anything that indicates lack of discipline, invites laziness and de degeneration into the leadership of the Ogmen, of the army, that brings shame upon them um, and uses the prestige and security that they get as members of the clergy, as guides of the Ogmen, uh, to hide what it is that is shameful about their lack of discipline. Lack of discipline creates division in an already badly divided world which is threatening to bring its divisions inside the church. And the whole experience of the reawakening of the 19th century indicated, just by the experience of the 18th century, that infiltration by the naturalist enemy was something that did not necessarily uh, involve a full-scale onslaught that was always resisted, but something that was invited by lax and undisciplined members of the clergy who were ready to indulge the self-delusions of a world reduced to nature and nature's tools alone. And this brings me to a much more uh, important part of our whole discussion here of Pius X as one of the literal uh, symbols of the way in which the church keeps up aspects of the Roman tradition. He sees that there is in his own day a tremendous lack of discipline, of degeneration, and in fighting power, decline in fighting power, everywhere around him, in the church, even with this reawakening going on. Now, that's because of a lot of the political difficulties I'll flesh out in a second. It's because of many economic difficulties due to changes and the decline of agriculture and, uh, and uh, beginning industrialization in the area of Italy that he's familiar with. He's familiar with the problems of lack of discipline by the behavior of the population in Tombolo and Salzano. In Treviso, when he goes to the Curia there, he becomes aware of the collapse of vocational life. And some of the statistics I'm going to quote to you here may surprise you. Um, when in Mantova, when he comes in as bishop, he comes in as bishop of a diocese which for a number of years has had no ordinations. No ordinations. In 1870 alone, 10 people abandoned the priesthood. A number of dioceses stopped obeying the bishop and started electing their own pastors. 
the seminary was closed down. Uh, Pius, when he, or Sarto, when he became Bishop of Mantua, discovered that there were many parishes which had gone decades without any preaching. Uh, many of the priests had concubines. Many of them didn't even baptize the children. He, as bishop, visited one place at one point and said, with the bishop announced his coming, only 40 women showed up in order to be able to hear his mass. When he goes to Venice, uh, he discovers that he's at a place that from 1866 to 1890 dropped from 418 to 290 priests. That's, that's, oh, that's approaching 1970s uh, uh, character. And where, once again, priests had uh, been weaned away from a sense of responsibility for preaching. When he gets to Rome as pope, he sees in the Roman Curia a dysfunctional institution. Um, in fact, he makes reference to a common statement in Rome where he says, in Rome, it is common to say that there are canons that do not pray and choir because they are bureaucrats and that they do not go to their bureaucratic jobs because they are canons who must pray and choir. Um, it's, it's inefficient, dysfunctional to say the least, and there's clear indications, as we'll see in a minute, that he considers there to be deep corruption there as well. He orders an apostolic visitation in Rome when he becomes pope, and uh, the man put in charge of it says the results were desolating. They were desolating because they discovered that many of the Roman clergy, not just in the city, but in the surrounding area of the diocese, did not consider themselves to have much, if anything, in the way of sacramental responsibilities, and once again, preaching. Now, I mean, this may sound odd, but I remember my, my grandmother, uh, who arrived from Italy in 1914, was just clear from stories that she would tell me how, how unchurched uh, they were. Uh, when they got married in the States, they had to be confirmed. Nobody had bothered to confirm them. Uh, where they were. Um, she, in talking to me about life in the town, it's quite clear there was the local abortionist um, who took care of people who wanted, wanted to get rid of their children. Uh, she also told me amusing stories, forgive me if I've mentioned this before, but I always find it so amusing, about how just before they left, the entire village that she was in was in an uproar because the peasants believed that the Chinese were about to invade. And the local mayor, and priest had to come out and say, no, no, the Chinese were thousands of miles away. Thank you very much. They're not going to invade. And they all went home happy. And then they migrated uh, half the village to New York, and they moved to Canal Street, and there were the Chinese on the other <laughs> side. So that it all looked like it was a gigantic plot to cook them. Um, but in any case, it's, it's in many respects uh, very much unchurched. And the question for uh, a man concerned with army discipline is how do you deal with this? How do you deal with this? Well, this, I think, is also very significant for understanding uh, Pius's approach. Sarto, Pius, I, I might as well just stick with Pius since we don't really generally refer to him um, as Giuseppe Sarto, but he sees the army on the basis of, again, his hands-on pastoral experience. He sees the army in need of basic training. It needs basic training. It needs practical training and practical experience. Now, I, I, I have been trying to dwell on this a bit, and I'm thinking in, in many respects, it's, it's like my own experience with the students who come up to my university. Uh, they're very pleasant 
very nice to me, very pleasant, I have no problems in class, but the poor souls have not really received anything in the way of serious education. And it may well be the case. In fact, there have been cases. And one has to find a way to nurture these cases. It may well be the case that among them there is a great brain surgeon or a lawyer or a fine, fine scholar, but I can't build the training on that basis. I can't come into the class that I've got and say, here they are, the future brain surgeons of America. Um, what I have in front of me are people who are in desperate need of basic training. One of my colleagues says, if I can get through the end of the year by having them write a sentence, it will be a major victory. And uh, his whole concept is the need for basic training in an, an augment that may well at any moment become an achiem, go from marching directly into battle. He's got to have basic training for these people. And quite frankly, his election as pope in 1903 is very much focused around that, that issue. Uh, it seems pretty clear, the, the conclave of 1903, because of stricter measures that Pius is going to take, is the last one that we really know a great deal about the inner workings of. And we know that at that conclave, that the large majority of cardinals thought that Leo XIII had, um, had been engaged in a lot of projects that overestimated the strength of the church under current conditions. And that what they needed was a man to get back to practical pastoral problems. Somebody with hands-on experience of practical pastoral problems. And his election at Pope is uh, very, very much due primarily to this. He's, he's the one who's obvious if you're going to look for somebody who's got practical pastoral experience. And what he thinks about this basic training that has to take place is that it has to take place underneath tight leadership. Now, um, this is partly due to his personality. He is a very private man, and he does things privately. And he likes to operate, uh, if he operates with others, with a very, very closed circle of private advisors. And this is true when he's Bishop of Mantova and, and when he's Patriarch of Venice, and when he has his Segreteria Personale in Rome with Bresson, his secretary, and cardinals like Mary del Val and Dulay and Vivesituto, uh, he operates privately. This causes a lot of resentment to him among other cardinals and in a curia that knows that the Pope thinks it's dysfunctional as well. But he also operates under very tight leadership, guided by himself, because one of the main points of the Catholic revival movement of the 19th century was that there had to be a strengthening of the day-to-day -day functioning of the papacy in church life in order that the war that was being fought for Christ against those who were fighting it for man could be conducted on the global level that it had to be conducted. So that there is a very much greater emphasis on the need for papal leadership, centralized papal leadership, by the latter part of the 19th century and early 20th century than there was in, in 1800, let's say. And this is now going to be uh, something digested by a man who uh, likes personal leadership anyway and is ready to uh, impose uh, his decisions on the world around him. 
Now, he's primarily concerned with the basic training of the clergy. And this, too, um, people point out regularly, and I think it's an accurate uh, judgment, that uh, his, his, his concern for the laity, Pius X, is, is one that is more as the uh, obeying passive force within the church. But, but this, we'll see, and for, practic for pastoral reasons, ends up often being, being, um, being nuanced by him. And his, his reason for being primarily concerned, concerned with the clergy is his experience. I, I mean, again, my experience with my students is not that there's this exuberant movement among them that is eager and it's got its eyes popping open, just dying to hear every word that comes from my mouth, that they need to have um, the, the, the teachers of the faculty awakened to know what they're doing in guiding them. There, you may find collaborators, you may end up building a huge collaborative movement, but you with your, per, your, your, your personal experience up till now have said, I, I've got to work with the leadership here. So he's primarily concerned with the clergy for basic training, for guidance of the Agmen Achiem. And he had wonderful models, both in, in Riese, his hometown, in Tombolo, his pastor, He's, he's very, very lucky in this regard. And I have to confess, uh, it reminds me, I was lucky in this regard. I, I never had a teacher that was a bad teacher. Uh, and I never had a teacher who was not a stimulating and encouraging teacher in one way or the other. And Pius X had this good fortune when he was young. When he actually starts to exercise responsibility in Treviso, in the Curia, in Mantua, in Rome, He's very much concerned for seminary formation. Uh, he's very much concerned, first of all, for picking the seminarians, and he's not concerned for dragging them in without judging them. And he's very harsh. He's harsh about, he's harsh about family motives for sending people into seminaries. He's harsh about keeping seminaries in, uh, seminarians in. Um, and interestingly enough, when he has an influence over what the studies are in seminary, he makes sure that there's enough of them paralleled on what people are learning at the same age in public institutions that when he boots them out um, of the seminary, they'll be able to pick up their civilian lives uh, without having been at a disadvantage. He's concerned when he becomes pope for creating regional seminaries instead of small seminaries in each diocese which can't teach much of, of anything. And the training of the priests who are in there is a training that he feels has to be a basic training which makes them fully aware of what it is that's most important for their priestly life. And here too, again, um, there may be things that, uh, there may be nuances that would have to be created to complete the picture to allow for the truly unique individuals in the seminary. But what he's concerned about primarily is training priests who are pious priests, pious priests who are formed according to a spirituality that he got in Padova from a professor at Padova who insisted on the need, especially in the circumstances of the 19th century, for priests to know that they had to be prepared for a life of humility um, and a life of suffering. And in fact, uh, Pius emphasizes over and over and over again that to be a priest is to suffer, and to be a priest is to suffer 
um, and to work at suffering at the same time. Your, your, your life is working um, and suffering. Uh, one great writer, 20th century French writer, when he talks about modernity, says that what modernity is all about is paying taxes and marching uh, for the army. Well, for Pius X, what being a priest is about in the modern world, even more than normal, is working and working and working and suffering and suffering and suffering. Now, um, let me see if I can find my notes here. Now, you are, you're suffering also for the laity. You're suffering for the laity. At Salzano, he would get up at 4.30 to say mass because people went off to work at that time. He at Salzano begins the work that he's going to continue always right through his pontificate of writing a catechism, uh, teaching the basic doctrines for the basic training of the laity who need some basic training as well, and writing a catechism that he's constantly correcting. Even while he's at Salzano, all through his, uh, the rest of his time up to the papacy and up to the creation of the Catechism of St. Pius X. And it's a, an original catechism. And it's really constantly searching for ways of bringing down to the level of the, the, the ordinary obeying soldiers in the army of Christ what it is that this is all about. Because they can't be marching without any idea of what it's all about, which is why preaching is so important for him. Everywhere, he makes preaching a, an important aspect of the life of the seminarians in Treviso and in Mantua and in Rome, as I'm sure uh, most of you are aware. He tries to uh, preach himself to the various parishes of Rome who come into St. Peter's to hear him until security forces started to complain about dangers that were involved. And he wanted to make it certain to people, make it clear to people that a sermon was not an academic lecture. Um, it was not something that was meant to go on for 40 or 50 minutes uh, and, um, and leave the congregation unaware of what the main message was that they were supposed to get. He spends hours in confessional and wants his priests to be ready for hours in confessional. And he does it as he indicates to his sister um, even when he you know, lets out a personal comment about not liking to do certain things. He doesn't like to visit the prisons in Venice when he's patriarch, but he goes. And he hears 200 confessions of prisoners, but he doesn't like it. But that's his job, because a priest's job is to work and to suffer. And with the laity, with the laity, he um, actually even with... Um, even with, uh, with, with priests, when he knows he's operating with people who have a sense of discipline and wanting to be part of this, this, this disciplined army, he can act um, in a way that reminds me of frontline officers in the First World War with their men. Uh, one of the characteristics of the First World War is that there was this tremendous binding of the soldiers with the officers that were the ones that had the immediate hands-on contact with them um, that led them into battle. And he, when he knows he's dealing with uh, laity uh, who are open to being guided and priests the same way, he acts with them as one of these frontline officers. There's no real formality to him. When Achille Rati, the future Pope Pius XI, went to visit Mantova for some reason, he knocked on the door of the Episcopal Palace and the bishop answered and said, you must need a coffee, and came in and gave him a coffee. He walks through the city 
Um, he jokes with people. He plays bocce with people. He goes on boating expeditions with the population. Um, you may well know that those jokes of his are often very, very amusing, including when people, as he, was, um, uh, as he was gaining reputation for sanctity, came to him as pope and said, we heard you work miracles. And he said, well, in this business, you learn a bit of everything. <laughs> um, and then again, then again, um, just as people who can be very informal with you, but in a loving way, if it seems as though you're not towing the line, he smacks you. Um, he does have a tendency to hit um, and punch, punch his priests if they uh, cause him problem. Now, it's not only a question of watch of, of, of um, training them. It's watching over them as well. In Mantova, he used to go incognito to see what his priests were doing. One day he went, and it was seemingly late. He rang the church bell at a parish and went in and sat in the confessional to hear confessions. And the priest came out to see what was going on and found his bishop sitting in there. This is rather embarrassing, to say the least. Another priest told him that he needed money desperately. So the bishop stuck money inside his breviary. And then the priest came back and said, uh, uh, Your Excellency, I need money. And then he knew that he hadn't opened his breviary and read it at all. Um, he, he, was, he was known, this is an interesting fact here, he was known as Il Bugiardo, the liar, when he was in Mantova. And he, he kind of liked that name um, because of the fact that what happened was that he would lull people that he was trying to investigate, clergy was trying to investigate, into a sense of calm where bit by bit he could understand that they were not doing his job. And uh, what happened then was that they would then relax more and more and tell him more and more self-incriminating information, and then he would smack down on them. And he describes this. He says that, you know, the Bujardo, the liar bishop, that meaning himself, has to have more the prudence of a serpent than the simplicity of a dove. And he says his motto was, make a hundred suggestions, a thousand promises, and keep none of them. Now, I think that's more uh, in the way of forcing the note as a joke than anything else. But again, as we know of through his career as pope, his encyclicals on what a priest should be, on what a bishop to be, carry on with the same activity. He has a kind of net when he becomes pope as a result of the desolating uh, results of the apostolic visitation of the diocese that runs through the city trying to find the priests who the Romans call the scagnozzi, which is a term that used to indicate like the scamps and the, the little scoundrels, like little kids, snotty little kids on the street that aren't doing anything and are probably not uh, meant to be in the diocese of Rome at all. Get them out. Get them out. And it's in this regard also of basic training that just as a, uh, an important footnote, his concern for music enters into the picture. Now, why? Because remember uh, uh, Plato. Plato argues that musical rhythms instilled in the earliest youth are the most important determinant of what your understanding of life and the society around you is all about. And if those musical rhythms are the musical rhythms of a Mozart, a Mozart symphony, or if those musical rhythms are you're going to have a different culture. And within the life of the church, for its rhythms, its musical rhythms, he wants nothing, as he says, ridiculous. 
And by nothing ridiculous, he particularly wanted the very common and very frequent and constantly repeated introduction of profane secular music um, and then in its most exaggerated forms especially into the church itself. And it's this that dictates his concern for return to Gregorian chant, but also a polyphony which is based upon the church's understanding of the need for the polyphony to express the meaning of the liturgy and not turn it into a, um, a recipe for uh, a, 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 um, a diva's ability to spin notes into a 40-minute 40 um, uh, presentation of the word la. Um, it has to be something which is, which is uh, subordinate. Um, he was horrified, by the way, as pope, when he discovered, as some of you might know if you if you studied music, that um, the the traditional church music of the church became a topic for bitter disputes among different proponents of different styles of Gregorian chant and the like. And he complained about this a great deal. Uh, he said, "All all I wanted," he said, "All I wanted was beauty, um, daily beauty for my people, so that they can pray in beauty." He said, "I wanted them to make art." He said, not scholarly examinations of dead, dead debates. Uh, but it's because of this need for basic training. And you need basic rhythms for basic training. Now, secondly, as heir to the Roman Empire, the supernatural transformation of, of everything. This, it's not the doctrine of the world that's guiding basic training. It is the doctrine of the church rooted in Christ. The doctrine of the church rooted in Christ, built upon the arguments of men like Cardinal P, who said that what our object was, was to restore all things in Christ, transform all things in Christ. And, um, and he, as bishop, especially as patriarch in Venice and then as pope, issues many, many statements, which we are all familiar with, in defense of the supernatural teaching of the church. I don't think I have to go much into detail on this, because we know that this is uh, the gist of uh, his great doctrinal defense of the church against competing systems of belief. Uh, everyone knew that he was, he was uh, a man who was concerned for supernatural doctrinal uh, uh, confirmation. In fact, one of the main modernist leaders in Italy, when he was elected, said in Italian, siamo fritti, we're fried, uh, because of this man. But what I want to mention just briefly here, with respect to his achievement, is not, not really, because quite frankly, I don't think that, uh, I think there are certain nuances that eventually come out with regard to certain uh, historical and, and, and scriptural studies, but the main, the main point, the main point of modernism, um, both in the theological realm and then what Pius X calls political modernism, is the fact that there is this freezing, this freezing of anything that you are able to say about God um, and the supernatural and doctrine on, once again to use my friend Chris Ferrara's phrase, the flatland level. You're not allowed, you're, you are not permitted by a man, named, a man like Loisy to even consider that God has the that God, if He existed, had the right to speak to human beings, because human beings are not permitted to have a communication with God, and it's this freezing and insistence that there's no possibility 
of communication, which is more the central problem than, let's say, a specific, uh, a specific historical study uh, and discussion of a book of the Bible. It's that freezing which is awful. And similarly, in political terms, it is the insistence of certain of the democratic groups that were becoming influential in the life of the church, not on democratic voting, that's not the problem, uh, but the insistence that somehow the transformation of human beings comes about through the fraternity that's unleashed by political equality and political democracy. And there's no way that you're going to be transformed in Christ by voting. Um, it's something which is, is, is going to come from grace from above, not by pulling a lever. And that's why also the emphasis on communion which, by the way, many of you may also know, was a hotly disputed issue. In fact, the, the, the emphasis on the need for more frequent communion that was symbolized by the meeting of international Eucharistic Congresses was something that, um, something that uh, a lot of people contested and thought would usher in an attitude on the laity towards communion which would be profane and which would, uh, which would encourage sacrilegious communions. But the Pope took it underneath his wing certainly from 1905 onwards, and then insisted upon being able to allow this most, most, uh, most, most splendid of means of transformation in Christ to guide people, once again, rather than the flatland arguments of the modernists of whatever kind. Now, I can see from Jim's appearance here on the scene that my time is rapidly running out, and I had one more absolutely brilliant uh, segment of this talk that will now remain forever hidden, and uh, which I, when I go back to my room, will burn so no one will ever read it, and you can blame Jim for it. <laughs> I'm joking about it. Um, uh, and that is that there is a dance still between the, the supernatural and the natural, expressed better in the 19th century uh, Catholic revival terms, uh, in, the, in the context of the dance between what they call the thesis, what it is that is the doctrinal necessity, and the hypothesis, the, 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 the dealing with the circumstances that you live in to put into effect. And the only thing I'll mention here, because I really I can't, can't go on through all of the, uh, the stuff I was going to talk about, is that uh, Pius X really has a different, un he, he knows there's a difference between modernity and modernism on the one hand, which is a doctrine, which is impossible to reconcile under any circumstances with the doctrine of the church, and simply what is modern. What is modern in many respects is simply what is needed due to changing circumstances if it's to put unchanging doctrine into effect. And he is, in many respects, a modern spirit. Um, he will change seminary routine if he finds it blocks being able to uh, grow as a seminarian properly. He will consort with Jews if they're friendly and helpful um, in many respects. And he has a lifelong friendship with one Jewish family, the, uh, the Yakor family from Salzano. And Mantua, he held a diocesan synod, the first in 239 years, in which, and I think this is an, uh, this is an important phrase, the goal was, quote, to establish norms opportune for new times, for new evils, for new demands, norms that past synods could not even have imagined. All right, this is Pius X who's saying this. Um, the Pope, Leo XIII, wanted to appoint a man that he thought was a good-for-nothing to a major church in the center 
of Venice. And, the, uh, and, and Sarto, patriarch of Venice at the time, wrote to Leo XIII and said, you appointed me here to take care of this, this diocese. And he said, I named a man who was good, but you wanted this other man. So if you want this other man, you take the responsibility and I will carry out your will. And he backed down Leo XIII. In other words, he's not, he's not unwilling to obey, but then, um, like the widow, then come to complain and say something, something's wrong uh, over here. And with the Roman Curia, he is so horrified by the Roman Curia uh, that he actually actually promoted a pamphlet under an anonymous name that indicated that he didn't think the thing could be dealt with unless there was a serious and general reform of the church as a whole. He was appalled by papal ceremony. Leo XIII was very aristocratic, and he liked many aristocratic customs. And um, he, um, he liked doing things like sitting in a gazebo in the morning and clapping his hands and having a, a man shoot at birds that he would eat for breakfast. Um, he, whenever he moved from place to place, was accompanied by many courtiers. And then in addition to that, um, many exotic animals as well. And Pius X did not want these animals around him for anything. <laughs> Um, he also did not want some other customs that were considered normal to be uh, followed, and he didn't like to eat alone either, and insisted constantly that people uh, eat with him. And even though he didn't carry through on his uh, threat of a general reform uh, to be undertaken, he did insist that the basic training of the basic leaders of the Ogmen Achim of the army uh, have clear law to know what they were doing, uh, whether what they were doing was correct or not, and hence he ushers in the great canon law revision that uh, through the guidance also of a, a fine workhorse uh, a colleague of his, Pietro Gaspari, is done in, in record time. Now, uh, I'm going to chuck the rest of the talk that I had here, uh, even, as, even though I said, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's so, it's, it's, it just makes me so sorry that the only way that Jim can make it up for me is, is to give me a double whiskey when this is done. Um, and that is, um, I, want to, I want to end this. I think this is a nice note to end this on. You'll, you'll, you'll enjoy it as well. Uh, when he came to the Vatican, Pius X, um, he was a man from the country. He walked, remember, constantly. He liked walking. He always walked a great deal. And when he got to the Vatican, the rooms in the Vatican were stuffy. And he said, you know what this place needs? It needs fresh air. He said, we need fresh air. And he didn't say open the windows for the fresh air because the doors were the problem more than the windows. There were a lot of big doors. And he said, open the doors up and let's get the fresh air in. But what is the fresh air that comes in here? Well, the fresh air that comes in here is a fresh air of a man who is a modern man and who recognizes that changing circumstances may require changing tactics. But those changing tactics in changing circumstances are always without question for the one unchanging truth. Any kind of hypothesis or pastoral activity is meant to be linked together with doctrine and with truth. This is what Trent understood when Trent tackled doctrinal questions together with pastoral reforms. This is what a certain other council does not seem to have understood. And the result of trying to deal with pastoral questions and modern things 
when you are living in a situation when what it is that is modern is also deeply infected by what it is that is modernist and which is deadly for the supernatural life of the church is, as the experience of the church already had shown in the 18th century, an open invitation to come in and take your table um, at the center of the Ogmen and wreak havoc with the discipline of the church and with the salvation of the population as a whole. So even though, even though Pius X, under the circumstances that he came in as Pope, representing an inheritance from Rome that was also very disciplined in character, and one in which uh, the role of the papacy as a supreme guide for understanding how to deal with the situation of fighting the evils of modernity, even though he entered uh, with that kind of a, a baggage, remember that um, he had no experience of anything doctrinally difficult um, or confusing could come out of Rome. Um, he had no experience, like most of us had no experience, of anything confusing coming from a long line of popes from Pius IX onwards and actually from, from Gregory XVI onwards beforehand. He had no experience of this. The question is, if he did have an experience of it, would he then, because of his great pastoral sense, have then said, this is another question of, on a much grander level, appointing a nincompoop to the center, uh, the central parish or one of the central parishes of Venice. And that my duty is to now stand up and say that uh, what we've got to do is, is perhaps rethink the kind of, of, of pastoral strategies that have to deal with the disaster that has come out of the Second Vatican Council. And although his picture is not up here alongside Pope St. Pius X, uh, we know of someone who we all hope and pray someday will also be recognized in the same way that Pope St. Pius X has been recognized, who I believe pastorally acted in the way that Pope St. Pius X would have acted if he had experienced such a changed circumstance as Vatican II and what has come out of it. And having said that, let me just end by noting that as I go through all of this, I realize that maybe I am actually happy with my profession anyway. Um, because having said that I'm a ne'er-do-well and I'm frivolous and that I don't know how in the world I got into this situation where um, I have to stand in front of that classroom and deal with all of my, my poor souls who've not had any training for being in this situation along with me, uh, I have to confess that I'm happier being in that situation than in a situation where I uh, would be uh, leading uh, a, a, an organization which is very dear to my heart and has to make very serious uh, judgments about what to do next in a difficult, difficult world. So I'm glad that I'm in my position and I'm glad that you are in your position <laughs> and that I don't have to do your work or that of Bishop Filet either. And with that, I go to my whiskey and we'll have lunch. Thank you.